Hi, I'm Julie Wilkinson and I'm a Chartered Management Accountant and I'm excited to be launching the Build and Exit podcast. This podcast is for business owners and entrepreneurs who are looking to expand their business portfolio by acquisition or at some point in the future want to exit their business. We're going to bring real life stories and experiences of people who have grown by acquisition, who have exited their businesses and other areas of business such as funding and cash flows. So there'll be lots of opportunity to learn different areas of business and how you can, in the end, transition your business from a lifestyle to an asset. So look forward to seeing you soon. Hi, and welcome to the Build and Exit podcast. I'm Judy Wilkerson, and I'm the owner and founder of Wilkerson Accounting Solutions. I'm really excited to be here with Kush Birdie, who is the owner and founder of Birdie & Co Solicitors. And we're going to be talking all about M&A today. We're going to look at... um, different parts of the process because uh, we both specialize in mergers and acquisitions and I have a lot of conversations with people buyers and sellers about how to prepare for exit but also key things to think about when buying businesses um, so Kush is a really experienced M&A advisor uh, working on sort of one to 10 million deals. His his solicitor firm sort of does his sweet spots around one to three million um, and probably worked on 50 to 100 deals over his um, time in M&A. Uh, so there's going to be lots of expertise in the room today. So <laughs> Kush, first of all, I'd like to hand over to you. Um, Thanks very much. Tell a little bit about yourself and why you chose to come on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thanks Julie for the introduction there. Um, so I think that, yeah, so as, as Julie said, I'm the managing partner and co-founder of Birdie & Co. Um, our core area is, is M&A. Um, and the reason why we wanted to do this podcast today is just to really, really um, give practical insights and share our experience in terms of what we see on M&A deals. Um, you know, whether it's on the sell side or the buy side with, with the combined experience on the sort of the financial and accounting side and the legal side, we're both obviously collectively well-placed um, to share the, the trials and tribulations and the successes, of course, of the M&A deals we work on. So it'd be really good to, to use our combined um, um, experiences in the way. So I hope that everybody can receive really really valuable um, information and, and, and in order to help them use, maximize their strategy of whether it's acquiring or if you're looking to sell down the line, um, then hopefully this podcast will be really helpful for you today. So I guess moving on then in terms of the, the cycle of, of a deal, um, heads of terms, uh, I know that there's, you know, you can spend, you can, you know, you can get them drafted up, sign them and move on. Um, or you can kind of spend too long on them sometimes as well. Uh, what, do you get involved with drafting the heads of terms? Because obviously when, sorry, not drafting them, but sort of negotiating the the, the structure of the deal, I suppose, um, is that something that you get involved with? Yeah, we would help uh, buyers. if So if we, I suppose on the sell side, we, if we were going to work with a seller over a long period of time, we'd help them get to the point where they knew their valuation. Obviously the buyers then got to negotiate the deals. I suppose when we work as acquisition CFOs for buyers, what we do is we help them. Well, first of all, we'd be saying the buyer that they should have their own plan. You know, it's quite interesting, really, the amount of buyers that will sort of sort of pick on a seller's financials. Oh, it's not accurate. That's not accurate. But yet, then we then we go to forecast and consolidate, and their own accounts aren't reconciling. And they so it's, that's quite interesting because it's like, well, you know, you've got to practice what you preach, really. <laughs> you know, are you actually ready to buy if you don't even have your own books in order? Is something that I would say. But anyway, once we get to that point, we'd be looking at a top probably. I would say for heads, if I was going to help someone with it, the best practice would be a top level consolidated cash flow. So you understand 
top level, what can the business afford? Because that helps you do the deal structure. Then you'd have the valuation of the P&L. Um, and then you'd have the decisions over excess cash, working capital and sort of per- buying the balance sheet. Um, they're sort of like the three sort of elements that I would say. And I think it depends how well the seller's books are on how you would then split that out in the heads. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think the buyer should have their own consolidated cash rate before they go to heads of terms, because otherwise, how do they know if that deal structure they've offered will work? Mm-hmm. Um, and all it's going to do is cause problems later down the line if it's not going to work or the worst case is they don't ever know it's not going to work and still close the deal anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and what kind of conversations are you having at the moment surrounding heads of terms? What are kind of like the hot topics on that when you're talking to clients? Well, the biggest issue I see is people trying to do their own, (laughs) not getting the financial expertise to negotiate the deal in the first place, not necessarily using the solicitors to write the heads of terms. Um, a lot of people will phone me and say, oh, can you do me this? Which is fine. I've got a bit of experience in heads of terms. You know, we do help people, you know, make sure they've got the exclusivity in. I would recommend if you're buying the balance sheet, you don't put the number, you put the workings. But then people just phone up and go, oh, what's the working? What working do I put in? It's like, it's not, yes, there is a set balance sheet, but it won't always be the same because ultimately there might be different things that stand out. You know, for instance, if you've got a high level of invoice financing, that might be a bit of a red herring that you might want to look out for. Um, so I do think the biggest issue, and this comes down to people trying to cut costs, buyers yeah. often aren't wanting to spend any money before they do the deal. But at the end of the day, if they go into due diligence, trying to do their own heads, there's like they might spend more money in the due diligence process anyway, yeah. um, because they're not prepared in the first place. So uh, I think the risk is people just trying to not using the right expertise. And that goes for different areas, legals, finance, probably HR. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as well, I think probably that I would say probably one of the three keys and maybe even IT potentially, depending on what business you're buying. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I think that we probably experienced similar things where you've been involved with heads of terms, um, documents, and it maybe hasn't had the right legal support. We've definitely been involved with heads of terms where it hasn't had the right financial accounting support or other support, that kind of thing. So it's really, really important that that if you're whether you're acquiring or selling you've got a good advisor team on your side to work together as well you know we we often receive heads of terms that have been signed or are about to be signed and the financial aspects of the deal haven't really been structured correctly in our view we're not tax advisors we're not accountants but ultimately we're the ones that got to draft these documents we've got to negotiate these documents and we like to gain an understanding about how the price has been formulated as well because it gives us practical insight into maybe um how you know warranties might be negotiated or or limitations or caps on claims that kind of thing might be negotiated um to give us that um well negotiating understanding and it it is an advantage so it's really good to get the advisors i think together at an early stage before heads of terms are signed or 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 substantially negotiated um because you're going to set your deal up very well um and avoid having to reopen issues as well which we often see um, and that causes delay and extra cost <laughs> so if, if, if investing in the right heads of terms and with the right advisors there is a point where it can be a bit over the top yeah. which you want to avoid but that's what the advisors are there for they're there to sort of say no let's move on now we've got enough of what we need um would you agree with that analysis? Yeah, I do. And I think it's hard. I mean, I just think one of the most important things is that buyer and seller 
and I think are aligned from mm. the start. And I think bringing the the advisors in early doors is quite important because they can help. I mean, I think, because I see it too often where the accountant's trying to go to the solicitors and the solicitor's trying to re give it back to the seller. I mean, ultimately, each advisor is specialist in their area. So maybe it's either group calls or the advisor, I think, should be talking directly with buyer and seller on the same call. I don't understand the secrecy. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, the financials are what they are, probably similar with the court, the contracts are. And there doesn't need to be secrecy around it. Ultimately, the most important thing is that seller and buyer are on the same page. Now, obviously, as much of that needs to be drafted in the heads. I suppose we're not the legal. So from our perspective, we help them. We help the buyer sort of negotiate with the seller. Our, our aim is to make sure they're both aligned and the seller being realistic on the adjustments. Um, and, and they understand why we're saying don't put the number on the balance sheet. Like this is the risk to the balance sheet. The seller needs to understand that too because the biggest issue we see is where numbers move from heads of terms to final um, you know, sale agreements. Yeah. And what I think tends to happen, seller often then thinks they're getting a bad deal because typically the balance sheet does drop in my experience because it's usually debts that aren't recorded properly, especially taxes and things like that. Um, so it does usually drop. And then they can start to think, because I've seen it drop way over half a million. Oh, wow. Yeah cash spare cash drop them a half a minute so they obviously then think oh i'm getting a bad deal they're trying to do me out but they're not <laughs> they just didn't have their books in order in the first place and you know we are seeing more though now where uh, we see the buy side and the buyer asks us what do we think is the risk and it's just so messy the thing is accounting can take you know if this is years of poor accounting it's not something we can fix in a few weeks um and we have seen scenarios where we go back to the seller and say look it is in a mess but the seller really likes the buyer. The buyer really likes the seller. We're like, well, will you stop then and let us sort it? Give us three months. Let mm. us sort the bookkeeping. You know, have a, a clause against yourself, you know, that that buyer's got the right to buy and you've got six months to sort it. And then and then let us fix it and get to some base level where you've got the information because that is one of the problems. If it is, if it is messing, they can't explain. It's not always something you can turn around overnight. And in yeah. the end, probably buyer's got to make that decision. What risk is the buyer? Because the seller just wants out normally. It's the buyer that's probably then taking the risk if the books are in or not in order. Yeah, I think that's really good insights, especially in terms of the communication aspect between seller and buyer. You know, I mean, we're, we're a strong, um, we, we strongly advise jumping on a a call or some kind of video call and, and collaborate whenever possible. I mean, you can, you can, you know, you can negotiate in writing and then go through the whole process, due diligence, and then issues crop up and what ends up happening, you all jump on a call and try to resolve it because you've got so far through the deal. Why not bring that straight forward? Do it at the outset. Everyone knows each other. There's rapport and, 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 and there's more likelihood that when issues or if issues do come up, then it's more collaborative than, um, well, the opposite of that. Uh, and that's only going to promote uh, strong deal making, I think. Mm. Um, and there's a common interest there. Obviously, buyer and seller are on opposite sides of the deal, but the common interest is to get that deal done on terms which sellers happy following their sale, acquirers happy once they've come in and they integrate to start their integration process. So you know, it makes yeah. sense. And I think sometimes, if I'm honest, I think what we see happens a lot is the accountants get involved because when there's poor bookkeeping, there's a bit of secrecy, you know, if we notice things because they've been with the people, have been, sellers have been with their accountants yeah, for years. Okay. And I just think, um, 
Yeah, I mean, we are, I've had lots of things say to me. I get people say things to me like, well, you know what it's like. This is a Cowans. You know what it's like, do you? Just tell them what they want to hear or they go somewhere else. I've had people say that. I've had, I mean, I would never do that. Um, I've seen uh, scenarios where we're talking about the accountants actually doing the bookkeeping, but they're like, well, because they won't pay for management accounts, we only post it anywhere and sort it out a year end, which is just as bad as not doing it. It's pointless. It's pointless to do the task if you're not going to do it right. And this is why I think, you know, sellers, because I'm not saying the accountant isn't doing a good job and I'm not saying the, the business owner has to necessarily move away from the accountant from the year end. Mm. But ultimately, the accountant, maybe their experience isn't in corporate structure, isn't in corporate governance and isn't in exit planning. And I just think, you know, that's why maybe use a different advisor. Getting a third party independent review as a seller is, could be quite useful earlier on in the stage to see whether you know what does a third party because also when someone's done the accounts for a long time yeah. there might just be things they miss because they're so used to the account yeah. so i mean that's quite a big step for for a business owner i would say um in my experience when we've either had a conversation or or identified a need to bring in like another advisor or something like that there you know it, it brings some level of anxiety because mm -hmm. you know the accountant that a client has worked with for a, a long period the trust levels are through the roof. I mean, understandably in certain yeah, respects. Yeah. So I completely get it. So how, what would you emphasize to business owners just to kind of understand that potentially maybe there is a need to bring someone, maybe a more specialist in exit planning like yourself um, and not necessarily using the accountant that's been sort of doing the accounts every year? Yeah, I mean, uh, the first question I ask is like, do they understand it? I, I do some, I have got some masterclasses that I run understanding financial statements and people always, business owners will say, oh, I trust my accountant, they save me tax, I understand it. But when we come down to the actual accounting principles of the financial statements, mm. probably the balance sheet more so than anything, I'm like, do you actually understand it? They don't because, uh, well, not some do, but 99% of the people I speak to, you pick a number on the balance sheet, something out of the ordinary that's not the bank, for instance, and say, what is that? And they just look at, they don't know. Mm. So, you know, maybe that's the relationship you've got with your accountant and you haven't needed to know. And that's your decision of how you work with the accountant. But I think when you're going to sell the business, you've got to have a different understanding mm. Because you've got you you've got to accept that the buyer, if you want maximum value and a quick deal, this is you know maximum value and a quick deal is going to come from having good understanding, good reporting, real time information, which maybe the current accountant isn't doing. And sometimes the accountants admit I don't have time capacity to do it as well. Mm. So I would say the first place we start. You know, we would never try and overshadow the account. We work with lots of accounting teams, you know, because the accountants are good at what they do, um, but they might not have capacity or the resource or skill set to do some of the more complex areas. So we would normally typically come in and do one of our exit discoveries initially, and we would just assess where it is, um, you know, how, you know, what do, in terms of like, more of more of a month end accounting is what I would say, because I think most accountants are okay at the banking and VAT returns and things like that mm -hmm. but it's more the accruals principle you know making sure you're matching income and costs like making sure sellers understand accounting principles especially when it comes to things like IP intangible assets fixed sure, assets sure. things like those sorts of areas businesses don't often understand the logic behind what they're doing and, and they often think oh I don't need to but I had someone come on my podcast Fiona who actually said that she thinks she tripled the value of her business by understanding financial statements wow because wow. at the end of the day, no advisor is with you 24 hours a day. Mm. And sometimes you have to make a quick decision. And surely it's better to have a good grasp and be able to make some of those decisions yourself and understand it rather than just always relying on somebody else. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's a really, really good point.
So I think in terms of structuring a deal, we were talking about heads of terms um, and we're talking about how you can support there. In terms of like the common points or, or, or clauses that you would want to see in heads of terms before, I mean, would, would you normally introduce a legal advisor or would you, uh, many of your clients have already got those sort of outfits in place? Not everybody. Sometimes people come to us about them. So obviously we would suggest them because I think, I do think heads of terms is probably more of a legal document. Yeah. Our element of it is normally just deal structure and valuation, which, um, you know, at the end of the day, we would advise what we find. We would probably expect the legals and the solicitors to then word it in a way that protects them because obviously that's not our forte is like mm -hmm. the legal wording. Um, so I think really um, the thing I see most about heads of terms is people not really understanding the importance of them so for example and this is probably so you can share on more is like exclusivity for instance i have seen quite a few people that have do, done their own heads that haven't had exclusivity in there so what because my understanding is that's the part that's legally binding yeah. of the heads isn't it so maybe just give yeah. a bit of a breakdown of what's legally binding and not in the heads sure absolutely so I mean, heads of terms is effectively the document that sets out what I call sort of the skeleton, the, the broad skeleton of the deal itself and all the principles. So the headline price, um, maybe like timing, um, whether there's any going to be, you know, warranties given to the buyer to protect the buyer from, from, from um, uh, like um, skeletons in the closet and post-completion. And yeah, as you say, really, it's the lawyer's job to kind of draft those and negotiate those with support from client and, and other advisors um in terms heads of terms aren't normally legally binding so they're not legally binding so that what that means is if you're an acquirer you're acquiring the business that the seller can effectively walk away from the deal for no reason um unless you have protection in there so it's quite common although heads of terms themselves aren't legally binding it's usually usual to have a few clauses in there that are because well if they weren't if these particular clauses weren't legally binding, there'd be no point in having them. So one of which you've mentioned, which is exclusivity. You know, you're about to embark upon an acquisition. You're going to invest huge resource management time into um, exploring this acquisition and, and trying to, to, to make the deal work. So you need to know, or you need to feel confident that your seller is not negotiating with another party. It's not just going to withdraw for no reason. Um, and it's usual to have a certain period, which does vary to be fair, um, where they can only negotiate with you. Now, you would want that to be legally binding in the heads of terms because heads of terms aren't legally binding. So you have to make that clause binding so that you can rely on it in law. Um, the other type of clause is, I guess, confidentiality. Um, usually, as an acquirer, you'd want to you'd want the um, the fact that you're acquiring or looking to acquire this company to be confidential. <laughs> so it's normal to have a legally binding confidentiality provision in there so that, you know, the parties can't go and speak to third parties or anything about, about the deal um, without each other's consent. Normally you just expect it to be purely confidential. And, and, and those are sort of the main, main things that you'd want to be legally binding. I think heads of terms generally also have some moral weight actually quite a lot of moral weight. So for example, you've negotiated your heads of terms, you've signed them, you spent a period negotiating them, and then to try to change your position or materially change your position on what you've already agreed can 
damage the trust quite quite a lot between the parties. So it's really, really important not just to pay attention to the legally binding clauses in the heads up terms, but all of them, even though they're not legally binding, you're not bound by them, you can change your mind, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you should still pay attention to those because it's very difficult to change the goalposts unless there's a very good reason to do so. Um, I mean, it does happen from time to time, but that's why it's important to keep, to make sure that the clauses are in there even if they're not the binding ones, if that makes sense. So, so yeah, I think just again on the exclusivity point, because it is that important um, on the acquisition side, if a seller were to breach the exclusivity clauses, well, what happens? Well, okay, you can claim against them for your out-of-pocket expenses, et cetera. But normally you'd want to have an actual statement in there to say, if the seller withdraws from the transaction or breaches the exclusivity clause, that then they have to reimburse your costs, that kind of thing, worded in a in a legal way, which um, the, the solicitors would, would advise on. Um, it is worth thinking about that just for extra protection and, and then the sell side kind of at least know and, and it's, it's there in writing to sort of say that they can't just withdraw, you know, willy-nilly or whatever. There'll, there'll need to be a, a very good reason to do that. Yeah. And then I'd be the types of things sometimes that people like to talk about as well at the heads of terms, which maybe because I think it's hard with the financial sometimes because this is where it does come down to the seller because in the end, how good are their books? And I do think sellers are a bit naive and they try and hold they don't have the information. Well, you, then you've got to decide at the buy side, is it even worth doing the deal? Because if they can't give it to you ahead, is it going to change in due diligence? Mm. Um, however, non-financial things that I see discuss is sellers will say things that I want to keep my employees. <laughs> yeah, I want to keep the systems. You've got to keep the premises. I mean, maybe there's a legal contract in and that this is because, you know, the seller is, you know, they, they've, they've built this business from scratch yeah, it's the baby, yeah. um, and it's their baby and they care about, you know, their employees and things like that. Now, so these are the types of things that heads, I mean, some sellers might not ask for it, but if they are starting to say these things, sort of things, then it's obviously something you want to start thinking about at the heads, because mm. what, like you say, what you don't want to do is just go, yeah, 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 yeah. To them, even if it's not in the document, because they are also, also <laughs> say, and then get to it, whether it has to be in the document or not is irrelevant. But if they're asking you these questions, it's something you should have in your mind and conversations you should be having. I think before you sign them, because ultimately if you just promise the world and then go back on everything you say, trying to sell the shareholders, it's, it's likely to either, well, worst case, you know, throw the deal yeah, or, you know, or, you know, or delay and lengthen the deal because you can't then come to negotiation. And I have seen, I've seen it a lot, especially on financials. But that's why I think it's really important to have the conversations with the sellers earlier on, because if the accounts are in a bit of a mess, the seller is where they are and the buyer has to choose whether they go on. But as long as everybody knows where they are, and you could probably even write something in the heads if it's really bad, just to say there's we need, you know, we are going to have to, and it could change the deal materially or something like that. As long as part, part of both parties know, then you're on the same page, aren't you? Yeah, but it's really important to, as you say, put a note in the heads of terms. Yeah. These aren't legally binding sort of statements in, in the heads of terms, but it's really important to have that in there just for the mutual understanding to kind of say, because when something crops up, it's kind of, okay, what do the heads of terms say? And if there's just a line in there, I mean, you can't just pop it in there. You, just, you should discuss yeah. it yeah, and, and that should be it, reflected yeah. in, in in the heads yeah. of terms. Yeah. Um, when I did my deal, I signed my heads in one day. 
Okay, great. Yeah. Because we had had all the conversations. conversations, Don't get me wrong. There's lots of conversations to and from back, but ultimately we all had to make sure we're on the same page. Mm. So when we got to signing the head, there wasn't all this back towing and throwing, oh, I don't want this, I don't want that. Because we'd already discussed all of the... Um, they had said what they want. I said what they want. You know, sometimes, yeah, you have to negotiate. Yeah, you, know, you have to come to a compromise. Sure. But yeah, we ended up signing ours in one day because there was no yeah. undiscussed issues. And I think if you're going into something feeling there's an undiscussed issue, but on both parties, it shouldn't be being signed. You need to go back to the drawing board and have those discussions. Yeah, absolutely. We, I can't tell you how many times I've seen it where heads of terms have been signed. There's maybe an acquirer paying on a deferred basis, which sometimes happens. It could be a, a no money down deal on the one hand, or it could just simply be some kind of retention, small retention, that kind of thing. But the discussion hasn't been had about with, with the seller about security. And then when they get to get advice from their solicitor, it's kind of like, okay, you're not getting all this money up front. What's your security for this money? Um, we, we see it a lot. We see it a lot. And it's just not been discussed. And I do get concerned by that sometimes. Um, I don't know whether it's just because, well, maybe it's more of a legal point. Um, but I think as a, if you ever don't receive your full price up front, there's a risk that mm. you may not get it. Um, and that's what we say to clients if we're acting on the sell side, for example. Yeah. And if, but even if we're acting on the buy side, we will say, have you mentioned this to the seller? Because as soon as they appoint solicitors, um, they're probably going to be advised to seek some kind of security from you for their deferred or their installment payments, that kind of thing. I guess it's slightly different in a situation where like an earn out situation where the the payment out to the seller um, over time is based on the future performance of the business. Mm. But I suppose it's still um, relevant to an extent, but it is more relevant where the price has actually all been agreed and fixed up front um, to, to have those conversations. So yeah, promoting that communication um, mm. is, is, is critical to a successful deal. And I think, I mean, I would say, if I'm honest, the state of the seller's books, I do think earnout clauses are probably welcome in a lot of cases mm. because at the end of the day, it's it's both parts, isn't it? Like the sell side, at the end of the day, as the buyer, you have to show the seller that you can run a business because ultimately you are saying to them, I'm going to take on and pay you this deferral. And sometimes I think the seller could get a bit worried if there are all these no money down deals because it's a bit like what well, you're not going to bring anything to the table to secure the business I've spent 20 years building. Yeah. Um, I don't think it shows good faith, if I'm honest. However, it can be done. But then on the sell side, though, you have to accept that you can't just sell a business and expect a buyer to pay all up front and give you the maximum price when you haven't got it ready. Mm. You know, if you are still working in it, nobody wants to buy a job. They want to buy an asset. So you've ultimately got to realise if, if you're at that point and you want to sell it fine, but go into it knowing, well, I'm working in it that probably does mean I'm going to have to stay on or I'm going to have to have an earn out because why wouldn't the buyer ask for that? And I don't understand why advisors on the sell side, like people like accountants and other advisors they're working with will tell them otherwise because surely it's obvious that if a buyer wants to pay um, if if a buyer want, doesn't want to work in that business, which of, often they don't, because they might not even be the specialised skill, that role will have to be replaced. Mm. So to start adding back and deducting dividends, things like that, when you know you're taking the salary because you're working in it, it just doesn't make any sense. And it automatically shows not good faith because the buyer will immediately not trust it because they're showing something that they can't explain. Whereas if you have this seller's pack that I'm talking about and it's all in there and you've got the adjusted EBIT and all the reasoning, you know, it really does go a long way, especially from good faith from the buyer. So I think both parties have to show good faith. I think the buyer needs to show good faith, you know, that they're all in, 
that they can run this business, that they've got their own ducks in a row, you know, with their own forecast. Because I think it would be fair for a seller to sort of think, well, ask, have you got your own forecast of how you're going to run this business? <laughs> how, because why not? Why wouldn't yeah. the seller want to know that from the buyer? But then on the reverse side, the seller's also got to be able to show, well, here are my forecasts. Because at the end of the day, they often are trying to sell it on the future of the business. So oh, I've got this come in. It's like, well, prove it then. But then what they will then do is go away and scramble for a forecast. Mm -hmm. And if I was the buyer, I'd say to them, well, show me last quarter's forecast and the actual's against it. And often they can't because they don't have it. So this is why I do think it starts with the sellers getting ready first because it helps the whole process. Mm -hmm. um, but the buyer, if the buyer owns a business now that they've maybe organically ran, then they can't expect the seller to be set up all in this way and then they can just have a business that isn't set up in that way because why should they expect the seller to do something that they're not doing themselves? Yeah, I think, yeah. So I think it's both ways, yeah, you know, it it's just morally ways. right that if you're expecting one person to do it, the others. And I'm not saying there'll never be errors or you'll find anything, but I think the principles in place is what I think is important. Yeah, there's a few kind of themes that have come out then really in, in, in this part of the discussion, which is eff effectively being organized as early as possible. Um, perhaps putting, uh, if you're a seller, maybe putting the buyer's hat on and thinking, well, what, what are they thinking about and how, how am I going to get my business ready to present it in the best possible way to them? That's going to benefit me, me in maximizing value. And if you're a buyer, maybe thinking about what the seller's thinking, what, what the seller's worrying about, you know, it's their baby, all that kind of thing. And, and, and then moving on from that, it's communication is key having those conversations, opening up the dialogue with the advisors as well, um, as early as possible and making sure you have had all the relevant conversations. Um, and then of course, making sure you've got the right advisors to work with. Uh, so, I mean, certainly if whenever we're instructed on a deal, the first thing we would do is reach out to the other side, effectively the other party's advisors and try to establish that rapport because we just know the importance of it. Even if just picking up the phone, just wanted to introduce myself, Da, 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 da. we hope to work, work with you, you know, et cetera. Um, it just goes such a long way. Yeah. And I think if the if the, the parties themselves have that kind of dialogue too, it's, it's, it's really important. So I, I just want to say thanks, Kush, for coming on the podcast. It's been really great just talking about, I don't, this is the first podcast I've done really where we've just sort of talked about the deal in general. Um, and I think it's been nice for my first in person. It's, yeah, it's really good to like just go through the stage. But if anybody, you know, needs help with uh legals um where can they find you well you can find me in lots of places um social media so i'm quite um active on linkedin um so don't hesitate to dm me on on there or even instagram we are on tiktok we're trying to get a bit better at that um otherwise you can contact me by email on kush k-u-s-h at birdielaw.com um and always happy to sort of have a chat um with no, no charges involved <laughs> for, for, for an initial chat. So don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you. And I just want to say thanks to all the listeners on the Build and Exit podcast. Um, we're nearly at 3,000 downloads now. Um, and we've just set up a new YouTube channel. So if you love the episodes, hit the subscribe button so more viewers can find our channel. See you soon. So once again, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. I hope you found it useful. If you think there's anyone else in your network that might benefit from our podcast, then please share it with them. Either just click the link and send it to them or send it in a Facebook group or other social media channel. Don't forget to subscribe so other podcasts come to you directly as and when we launch them. So I'm really looking forward to seeing you next time. We've got some really exciting things coming up and we'll see you again soon. 